All right, we are back with the Anglo-German naval race. So, interesting. You didn't um, want to do this at first. Yeah, well, you know, because we talked so much about industrial power in the um, in the Germany episode, but but yeah, when you when you put the stuff down, I, I see that there's definitely a lot there to talk about. Um, so for me, when I was reading your notes, I thought back to my first year history course at U of T and we read Paul Kennedy, the rise and fall of the great powers. <laughs> that was our required text. Yeah, yeah. And for those who don't know Paul Kennedy, um, he made a big impression on me. Paul Kennedy is basically like he explains history in terms of basically one variable. <laughs> he his, He's like, you know, this happens, that happens. The personalities clash. The agendas uh, are at work. The political economy, the ideology, the intellectualism uh, of the time. And then uh, the side with more industrial power wins. <laughs> And and so he he makes this these tables. So there's there's these tables. Uh, I found um, I didn't have his book uh, with me. It's at my parents' house. Actually, oh, I, I I have it. You have the rest. Well, yeah, it's I, I left it. I, I guess when I I guess I lived there when I, when I was taking the class. So I think I left the book there. But I found a paper by him from 1984 about World War One. Uh, and so it's. Uh, He's got all these tables. Uh, main, the source of the tables actually are from Quincy Wright, A Study of War, 1965. So he's yeah. not the source of these tables, but Quincy Wright is. And Paul Byrock, Paul Byrock, International Industrialization Levels from 1750 to 1980. And I, I pasted 10 of these tables into our notes here. Um, and, you know, I'm just, we, I might as well just talk about Germany and Britain because he, he has Britain, France, Russia, Germany, Italy, Austria, Hungary, US, and Japan. So table one is like how much money they have, they're spending on defense. And in 1890, Britain is spending 157 million, Germany 121. 1900, uh, Britain goes way up, 253 million, Germany is 168. 1910, Britain is 340 million, Germany is 204. So actually, it's Britain that's pulling ahead until 1914 when Britain goes 384 million and, and Germany is 442. So in okay. four years, Germany more than doubled their uh, defense spending. Yeah, and, and we'll, we'll uh, explain further on in this episode why, why those numbers are so high for Britain. I thought there were a few outliers, though. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for example, you can understand the Germans being annoyed because Austro-Hungarian military spending is Static. on par with Japan's. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> then the fourth stupid. highest military spenders are the United States of America. Yeah, and they're and you completely wonder, who safe. Who are you arming? <laughs> it's completely safe, completely you know unaffected by anything going on, um, and and of course. Uh, Russia is also seems to be trying to keep up with Germany or vice versa. So mm -hmm. Germany by 1914 is 442 million and Russia is 441 million. Mm -hmm. So Germany made this big leap and it leapt ahead of Britain, but not ahead of Russia. Um, personnel. 
Uh, Britain in 1910 has 576,000. 1914 has 532,000. So by 1910, Germany is ahead of, well, Germany is always ahead of Britain, except briefly in 1900. But in 1910, Germany has 694,000. And in 1914, 891,000. So these are standing armies. So these are regular troops trained with weapons in their hands, ready Mm -hmm. to go at a moment's notice. This does not include uh, reserves, partially trained reserves. Russia has 1.3 million and France has almost a million by 1914. So that's, I mean, it's interesting because France, we talked in our Dreyfus Affair episode about how paranoid they were about Germany. Uh, But they have um, a bigger army at every stage. Yeah. Not as much uh, tech. There's total population, a table where Germany is just growing really fast. Uh, So is Russia, I guess. Um, So is the US. But Britain, of course, is not. But of course, Britain has India to draw on and among others. Uh, Percentage of world manufacturing production. This is interesting because Germany has uh, 8.5% in 1880 and 14.8% in 1913. Britain goes from 23% in 1880 to 13% in 1913. So they, by the time the war starts, they are around the same in terms of percentage of world manufacturing. U.S. goes from 15% in 1880, lower than Britain, to 32% in 1913. So, yeah, that, that's the big story, is Britain's lead slipping, yeah. the Germans overtaking them, and the Americans overtaking both of them e- combined. Everybody, yeah. It's yeah. just staggering. Yeah. So, um, of course, one major correlate <clears throat> of power, military power, is steel production. This is a... Uh, This is a big deal to Paul Kennedy and I guess anyone who analyzes military affairs. Can you produce steel? If you can produce steel, you have a chance of military world domination. Uh, Britain is producing 7.7 million tons in 1913. uh, Same as it always was, basically. Russia goes from 2.4 million tons in 1880. I mean, Germany goes from 2.4 million tons in 1880 to 17.6 million tons in 1913. The U.S. goes from 3.9 in 1880 to 32 million tons in 1913. So same story as percentage of world manufacturing production reproduced in steel. Germany pulling ahead of Britain, way ahead in this case. Steel is very important to Germany. (laughs) Um, With with a couple of outliers, right? Yeah. If you look at the numbers for Mm Austria-Hungary and Italy and Japan, they they are very, very low. They're making nothing. Yeah. Right. So in terms of the uh, Kennedy thesis, discount them. These countries (laughs) can't compete. Yeah, they're not doing anything. So, Um, And then total industrial potential of the powers, table seven in this paper, uh, basically making an index where 100% or an index of 100 is Britain in 1900. So right. if Britain in 1900 is 100, Germany is a 71, the U.S. is 127, and by 1913, Britain is 127, Germany is 137, the U.S. is 298. Wow, that's a big yeah. 
That's a big, yeah, this, it just comes up over and over. So table eight is comparative industrial technology, technological advantages. And what he does here is they're starting to put together Germany plus allies, France plus allies, right? And then table nine, it's Germany and Austria-Hungary plus France, Russia plus Britain. And so he's trying to do these calculations, which maybe they're doing. Maybe the leaders of these countries are doing. Like, if we can get Russia, whose side is Russia going to be on? Whose side is, is uh, well, really Russia's the only unknown, right? <laughs> Everybody else is, we know whose side they're going to take. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Well, I guess U.S. too. They're, they Germany may have hoped the U.S. wouldn't side with Britain or something, but it's pretty naive. So, yeah. So again, just to just to go back to Kennedy's uh, thesis, which I think is very influential in today because we were taught it. We were taught it in uh, first year history class and at university, and I'm sure it's still very influential today. Maybe it's not, I don't know, but uh, it's definitely had a, it definitely stuck with me. The idea that this, that warfare, uh, modern warfare is about industrial output. And, but um, I love the, I love the date of, of these statistics, 1965. So you've had world war one and world war two. Yes. And now you find that all of your statistics fit the results of those two wars. (laughs) Look, right. <laughs> oh, are we are we ever gonna see and then um, <laughs> a few years after 1965 there's a small war in southeast asia uh indochina where, that um where the the industrial, industrial output is uh, output is pretty pretty uh skewed not, not exactly a match <laughs> no no yeah, that's true. That's true. And th- and that's the thing. Like this is there and there's a lot more of this, right? We're talking about a lot of the theorists in this um in this episode of naval power, sea power from the time, not Kennedy, but people from that time and how they were basically writing history to explain the history up to that point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in and some it- respects it reminds me of the the scientific racist argument. <laughs> Oh, that's uh, these guys were into that too, as we yeah, will see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but it definitely are, points yeah. out that uh, in Europe there was a really, really significant arms race. Each country was increasing the size of its standing army for fear that they would be defeated in the first weeks of a war like the Franco-Prussian War, like the Austro-Prussian War. So if you don't have a big enough standing army, you could lose in in the first round of the fight. So we need a, a larger standing army. We need equipment for that standing army. We need artillery. We need... And then every technological change brings another huge increase of spending because we need the latest artillery. We need the latest of this. And then your neighbors announce an increase in defense spending. It's always defense, right? This is purely defensive. Yeah, nobody ever does anything aggressive. In right. Europe. So when your neighbor is bulking up, uh, you have to take defensive measures, which they will interpret, of course, as anything but defensive. So, so we go yeah, ahead. Go ahead. 
No, no, you. I was gonna say I was gonna hand it over to you just formally. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, rather than do an entire episode on the arms race, uh, we just wanted to highlight these statistics and then introduce you to one particular phase or or one particular area where the arms race was carried out with, I think, rather dramatic consequences. And this is the Anglo-German naval race, and specifically the building of dreadnoughts, the super battleships of the era. Uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that Star Wars has dreadnoughts. Just the <laughs> word is scary, right? Yeah, it's a great scary word. Yeah. So I'm... Uh, Referring to my usual sources, Macmillan and Clark, but I also checked out uh, a series of articles by L.W. Martin, R.B. McCallum, and J.N. Westwood, who I found out was a prophet McGill. I, I didn't know that. McGill is a Canadian yeah, university in Montreal. Canada, yeah, Canadian culture, I think, is obsessed with World War I. I don't, I don't know much about what it's like in the U.S. in terms of this issue but i'd say world war one is a big deal in canadian culture it, and it education is. yeah it is it had a lot to do with uh i guess uh our identity and uh, our independence we we weren't independent before this and shortly afterwards we we were mm -hmm. so when you when you address this topic you cannot avoid alfred thayer mahan uh justin's mentioned him before uh he, he just has an enormous, enormous reach. He's an American naval officer who, who served in the Civil War, uh, not with great distinction. While in actual command of a ship, his skills were described as not exemplary. <laughs> this is those uh, who can't do teach, right? <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> those who can't. On do. several occasions, vessels under his command were involved in collisions Oh God! With both moving and stationary objects. <laughs> so uh, okay, he's had a few accidents in command of a ship, uh, and then he thereafter he tried to avoid active sea duty. So good, good call. Uh, in 1885, he was appointed at as a, a lecturer at the Naval War College, and this eventually led to him writing uh, his first book. The Influence of Sea Power Upon History, <laughs> from 1660 <laughs> been... to 1783, and it was published in 1890. I've been meaning to read this one, because <laughs> it's been coming up, uh, so I did uh, read. Oh, did you least, really? Uh, yeah, I went and Oh, better you and, than me. And read in it, yeah, and, and uh, it is... It's become normalized, but this is one of my problems with British imperial propaganda and American, I mean, both, which is like this worldview that says anybody would do what we did in our place, right? It's, it's, it's a, you know, it's, it's every criminal's kind of first, <laughs> first um, defense to say, you know, if it wasn't me, it would have been somebody else. Oh, and okay. that's one of Mahan's points in the very beginning of the book. So he's he's trying to explain why sea power is uh, so important. And here's how, you know how Adam Smith in uh, The Wealth of Nations, he says people have a, human beings have a propensity to truck and barter. And so they'd start bartering and then they gradually create this incredibly complex economy, right? So mm -hmm. it's this parable uh, 
So, so Mahan's parable goes like this. He says, the profound influence of sea commerce upon the wealth and strength of countries was clearly seen long before the true principles which governed its growth and prosperity were detected. To secure one's own people a disproportionate share of such benefits, every effort was made to exclude others, either by the peaceful legislative methods of monopoly or prohibitory regulations, or when these failed, by direct violence. So it's just like this view of history as just constant attempt to monopolize and do violence through trade. And I'm like, this is this is exactly what the British Empire did, but I don't think this is a description I don't think this is a valid parable that explains human history everywhere in all times. <laughs> no, what he's done is, it, yeah, he's writing in, in, in the 1880s and yeah. he looks around and goes, okay, who's number one? Well, obviously Britain. Well, how yeah. did they get to be number one? What stands out about Britain? Hmm. Yeah. Oh, their Navy. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. this is how you do it. This is how you build a theory. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Two years later, he wrote The Influence of Sea Power Upon the French Revolution and Empire, 1793 to 1812. So based on secondary sources, and particularly the writings of uh, Antoine-Henri Jomini, a Swiss officer who served with Napoleon, but then joined the Russians in 1813. Jomini was one of these military theorists. So uh, his operational prescription was extremely simple put superior combat power at the decisive point Nathan it, it's bedford nathan bedford forest, forest right? yeah get <laughs> yeah. there firstest with the mostest men and, and they, they serve it's a civil war he's a civil war guy too right so he may have even heard that uh that mahan was, yeah oh sure yeah sure so he applied this to sea power the destruction of enemy commerce is secondary And the main objective of the Navy is to win control or command of the seas, either by defeating the enemy battle fleet or by blockading their ports. Uh, He recommended that naval officers read history. He emphasized the importance of colonies uh, as naval bases and as coaling stations. So, so it, they have to read history because this guy is clearly not very good at math. Right? <laughs> this is why his, his ships under his command are, are bumping into each other. <laughs> so I think he's, I think there may be some kind of like avoidance of, of uh, the quantitative skills of naval warfare here. Yeah. yeah. Well, and as I say, he's working backwards. You know, yeah. he's starting with the, the, the thesis that, Britain has the magic formula for success, and that is naval power. And now he goes back and does his research to find the evidence to support his theory. But Mahan emphasized six fundamental prerequisites for sea power. Favorable geographic position. Suitable topography. I think by that he means you need a coastline with decent harbors. Uh, Adequate size of territory sizable population, sound national character, and good political institutions capable of developing national assets. <laughs> Did you like number five? Oh, I, I, have more to, I have more to say about number five. Uh, so okay. I, I, I was reading a, his number five. 
<laughs> and so one of the things he does is he compares, he basically explains why Spain and France were, it's it's like a Goldilocks theory, right? It's like Spain and France were, did it wrong and England and, and Holland did it right. So he says Spain was a little too, uh, too much, too spendy, too spendy. He says, since the Battle of Lepanto in 1571, uh, no victory, no sea victory of co- any consequence shines on the pages of Spanish history, and the decay of her commerce sufficiently accounts for the painful and sometimes ludicrous inaptness shown on the decks of her ships of war. Doubtless such a result is not to be attributed to one cause only. Doubtless the government of Spain was in many ways such as to cramp and blight a free and healthy development of private enterprise. But the character of a great people breaks through or shapes the character of its government, and it can hardly be doubted that he that had bent that had the bent of the people been toward trade, the action of the government would have been drawn into the same current. So the the Spanish don't like to trade they're too anti-trade and they too, spend too much. So he, France, yeah. Sorry. So Mahan missed our episode from our first Civ series where we talked about how Spain dominated Europe for 150 years. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but but France meanwhile has 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 never done more than be adequate, he says, something like that. And he says as Spain and Portugal sought it by digging gold out of the ground. The temper of the French people leads them to seek it by thrift, economy, hoarding. Apparently, France <laughs> is too, they're too miserly. They just hold on to their money. Right. So by comparison, uh, the English and Dutch have two things going for them. And the one most important thing is they were no less bold, no less enterprising, and no less patient than anybody else. They were more patient in that they sought riches by not by the sword, but by labor, which is the reproach meant to be implied by the epithet for the epithet that their nations of shopkeepers for thus they took the longest instead of what seemed the shortest road to wealth they were by nature businessmen traders producers negotiators therefore both in their native country and abroad whether settled in the ports of civilized nations or barbarous eastern rulers or in colonies of their own foundation they everywhere strove to draw out all the resources of the land to develop and increase them <laughs> I like that. Not by the sword, but by labor. Labor, in, yeah. in brackets, other people's labor. <laughs> Let's keep going. At home, they became great as manufacturers. Abroad, where they controlled, the land grew richer continually. Products multiplied, and the necessary exchange between home and the settlements called for more ships. The land grew richer wherever they were, Dave, like Ireland, India. Mm. Uh, <laughs> right? So um, he also says the other great thing about them. So they're they're into trade, which is great. And then they're also great colonists, which is a huge uh, advantage they have. The fact of England's unique and wonderful success as a great colonizing nation is too evident to be dwelt upon. And the reason for it appears to lie chiefly in two traits of the national character. The English colonist naturally and readily settles down in his new country, identifies his interest with it, and though keeping an affectionate remembrance of the home from which he came, he has no restless eagerness to return. In second place, the Englishman at once and instinctively seeks to develop the, new, the resources of the new country in the broadest sense. In the former particular, he differs from the French, who are ever longingly looking back to the delights of their pleasant land. In the latter from the Spaniard, whose range of interest and ambition was too narrow for the full evolution of the possibilities of a new country. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, okay. Uh, okay. Okay. 
<laughs> so real too hot. The oats are too hot. The oats are too cold. Uh, English. I'm surprised oats. that he included the Dutch in there because you know the the golden age for the Dutch. Uh, it was it didn't last that long. <laughs> well, right? he, he lumps all the golden ages go together. Okay, England, uh, America, and Holland. should it should be noted that a lot of what uh, Mahan is basing his thought on is an era where seaborne communications were faster than those on land. Yeah. A- and also an era when ships at sea could only be attacked by other ships. And not by, for example, fighter jets or long-range missiles. Well, um, yeah. I mean, even primitive airships are going to change the equation for uh, ships at sea. And also railways are going to change communication and so is the telegraph. Yeah. So some of the advantages that uh, his British had in, in their golden age uh, are gone. And he, he kind of talks about that a little where he says, you know, sailing ships are different from coal and coal fueled ships. And he has various things that he understands about it, but there's also, uh, well, when we get to Mackinder, <laughs> we'll, we'll talk okay. about that. Well, basically, Mahan's books, books, a plural, boil down to this simple sentence. Whoever rules the seas rules the world. And those books had uh, an enormous impact. A- and his timing was incredible. Uh Given the, the rapid technological change, uh, first of all, in, in propulsion, so these big ships are going from coal to oil and from reciprocating engines to turbines. So they are going to be faster, have a longer range. It, it, I mean, it's changing the whole argument of, of sea power. Also, the changes in ordnance, that is guns, new high explosive shells, new armor piercing shells, better fire control, fire directors, plus armor. These these ships are going to be incredibly uh, powerful, both offensively and defensively. And then you have new ships, new types of ships, such as destroyers and submarines. But Mahan's emphasizing the capital ship, the big, big ships, and the command of the sea. So while with, with this technological stuff in the background, his timing couldn't have been better. So he had a very wide readership. Kaiser Wilhelm loved his books and ordered his naval officers to read them. Uh, Admiral Tirpitz, who we'll meet a little bit further, used Mahan's name to push for the creation of a German battle fleet and to win over public opinion. So his, Mahan's name was, you know, common knowledge outside of military, outside of naval circles. And German naval strategy in World War I came to be based on Mahan's theories. French naval doctrine was also based on Mahan, but they learned different lessons during the war. Mahan's book was translated into Japanese and used as a textbook by the Japanese Imperial Navy. 
he had less influence on British strategy. Uh, that was because Admiral Fisher, by then the, the uh, Sea Lord, had to defend home waters and the far-flung colonies. So the British could not concentrate all of their big ships into one super fleet because they had to defend so many areas. Uh, Fisher became interested in submarines and fast cruisers as well as the big battleships. But that's not to say that the Brits did not appreciate Mahan's books because he was reminding them of the glory days of Admiral Nelson and, you know, also helped to inspire a naval revival there. He he said at one point the Battle of Trafalgar was a battle between the two greatest leaders in history or something. So, Really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> so flat, he laid it on pretty thick in terms of flattery. Yeah, yeah. By 1880, though, uh, and I think your your friend Kennedy would, his tables would agree with this, Britain was in decline, economic decline, but also in terms of its relative military power. Uh, Yes, they had the largest navy, but it had been neglected for years while the government made economies. The government was saving money. I thought that was a French thing. (laughs) <laughs> yeah got, there's a gotcha there there's a yeah gotcha there. yeah actually if if you've read western history you realize that the british were always cheap they always tried to send an expedition with the minimum necessary force just to save some some money and well, that's why yeah. so many of their expeditions came to, <laughs> failed <laughs> And it's also taxes, right? Like people think of Americans as the ones who hate paying taxes, but I mean, competing with the with the British nobility in terms oh, of gosh. their aversion to tax yeah. <laughs> to paying yeah. taxes is, is pretty yeah. hard. Yeah. Meanwhile, the French are busy rebuilding their navy, and the alliance between France and Russia made Britain nervous. There were several naval scares. You know, one of one of the French or the Russians uh, go on fleet maneuvers, and Britain panics. This is aimed at us. They're coming. It, you know, there's there's the hindsight. Everybody knows who was on whose side in World War One, but in the 1880s and 90s, that had not been decided, and and Fashoda's coming, so the British were actually more afraid of France, and in the 1880s the British had a serious problem because the Royal Navy was largely obsolete. I I found this amazing. In 1889, they still had battleships with muzzle-loading guns. Muzzle-loading as opposed to breech-loading. Meaning you have to go around and stuff the gun stuff the ammunition in the in the can in the front you got to the... go to the business end of the gun and put <laughs> the shell in the in there and push it down. Yeah, exactly. So, and breech loading is a hundred years old. It's not a hundred, but you know, something close to a hundred years old now. Maybe. 50. Well, there's more modern guns and better guns, and so on. And the British were afraid to, you know, redo the entire navy because the cost would have been staggering. But now the the, <laughs> the threats are mounting, and Mahan's books helped them decide. Okay, we're going to bite the bullet. We're going to modernize our navy. You want to rule the world, don't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, staying number one is, is not easy. So the British came to believe in what they called the two-power standard. 
Uh, this thing had been around actually for, for a long time. It, it was implicit in British imperial policy, but it now becomes officially the basis of naval planning. So for Britain to be safe, the minimum standard of security, the British must have as many ships as the next two strongest navies in Europe. Oh, this makes sense for U.S. military uh, planning, too. They yes. must have inherited this idea. They have to be able to fight two powers at the same time. Right. Da, 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 da. And in the 1880s, this means France and Russia. So the nightmare scenario would be a joint Franco-Russian fleet coming into the channel, overwhelming the home fleet by strength of numbers, and then landing troops in Britain. So all of the statistics at the beginning about uh, British military spending does not include a large standing army. They didn't have one. They spent their money on the fleet. So if our fleet loses, we're seriously exposed. That's why we have to fight them over there, so we don't have to fight them over here. Right. So the, the, the British are, uh, let's say, concerned by the Franco-Russian alliance in 1892 and three, And when the Russian fleet Played, uh, paid a courtesy visit to the French harbor of Toulon in 1893. That was also very alarming. So they passed, the British passed the Naval Defense Act in 1889. They were going to spend 21 and a half million pounds, build 10 new battleships, 38 cruisers, four gunboats, 18 torpedo boats. And at this time, their new battleships, the Royal Sovereign class, were 40% bigger than anybody else's battleships. And there was a huge debate in Parliament. Uh, Gladstone himself opposed the cost. Uh, and when a second naval building program was pushed through in 1894, he resisted violently and then finally resigned. So there were members of Parliament who thought, we have to make social changes, we have to make electoral changes, we've got the the issue of Ireland, and you guys want to spend all the money on the Navy. And yeah, that was the argument. And part of this reason, again, part of the reason for all of this building is technological because your ships are obsolete. But you could use the argument in reverse as an argument against building because the ships you're building now are going to be obsolete within a couple of years, yeah, right? It's like having, having to have the latest iPhone or the latest whatever. Yeah, wait wait two years and you'll get a better one. I don't know. The ships are bigger. They're more heavily armored. There are new shell types, improved torpedoes, and uh, gyroscopes. So these are uh, heading indicators included in submarines and the same technology that's later on in guided missiles. You have wireless radio, and now you have oil and steam turbines replacing uh, the coal fired engines. And just to add to your worries, if you're British, there's not just the French and the Russians. The American fleet has massively increased so that they could punch Spain in the Spanish-American War. Yeah. And now there's a Japanese fleet in Asia celebrating their victory over China, and that changes the naval balance in, in Asia. And you have to worry about Hong Kong, you have to worry about Singapore. And then, of course, there's Germany that's going to come along and <laughs> make matters even worse. This is very hard. It's very hard to maintain world domination. 
I, you almost feel bad for them. Almost. <laughs> almost. Yeah. So uh, Kaiser Wilhelm was a naval enthusiast. So in previous episodes, we said, you know, he had a real love-hate relationship with England, but he he loved naval things. He enjoyed uh, yachting, and he took great pride in uh, being an honorary admiral in the Royal Navy. If that sounds weird, don't forget that Queen Victoria was his grandmother. So uh, honorary admiral which he took fairly seriously. So he frequently pestered the British Admiralty with uh, suggestions on how to fix their Navy. <laughs> not not all of them were bad, but uh, as I'm sure you can guess, they weren't all that uh, thrilled to receive his letters. And I said Mahan's book really made a great impression on him. Interestingly enough, there was a group of people who shared his feelings, and it's the German middle class. Uh, envy of Britain, desire for an overseas empire and and the prestige that would go with it. And there was considerable enthusiasm for a Navy. It's hard to tell how much of this is Mahan's influence or whether he just, you know, stoked their fires a little bit. But there was definitely a mood in Germany. If we're going to be number one, we need a Navy worthy of number one. And it's in this period that Alfred von Tirpitz enters the scene. Uh, Tirpitz was born in 1849. His father had been at school with Bismarck. And Bismarck's successor, Chancellor Caprivi, was actually uh, extended family. I, I don't know to what degree, but he was kin with Tirpitz. He was a Prussian. And Prussia had no naval tradition. Right, This is the, the country of Frederick the Great. The army is number one, number two, number three, and so on. They didn't have a naval tradition, and Tirpitz was going to have to create one. And he also had to fight against what he considered false doctrines. So, for example, those who favored expensive coastal forts with big guns to keep the British Navy at bay and, you know, this sort of thing. Tirpitz had a, a scientific mind and was actually very good with technology. His one eccentricity was his uh, appearance. He had the, a forked beard. Not sure why, but it certainly helps you identify him in photographs. So as I say, uh, he's not an aristocrat. He's, he's not a Prussian either. And he's got this middle-class view of how Germany's going to achieve their their global role, and that's by emulating Britain. And that means that Britain is the chief obstacle to German greatness. If we're going to be number one, we have to push number one off the, off the, day, off the throne, right? He had a, a gift for devising simple schemes, expressing them in compelling language, and then mobilizing political support. Tirpitz is going to be the architect of the German Navy. But according to Martin, he's also the first successful manipulator of German nationalistic mass opinion. He's a, he's a public opinion. Uh, yeah, I read someone else. Uh, I can't remember who, but I'll, uh, I have a quote that's similar about how this was one of the first uh, state-run propaganda campaigns was mm -hmm. the Navy. Oh, it's Fritz Fischer. Yeah, we'll talk about him. Yeah. 
And Tirpitz also made the Navy a popular career, quite an achievement in, in uh, Germany. The French and the Russians uh, were rebuilding and expanding their navies, but they had too many different uh, experimental types of ships. Tirpitz went for homogeneity, easy to build, easy to supply, easy to train men for. He wasn't interested in the fast cruisers that could protect colonies and commerce. In his opinion, they didn't have enough naval bases to make that kind of strategy work. Instead, he wanted a fleet of battleships that could challenge the British in the North Sea. I don't mean to say that he planned to attack the British fleet. He just wanted to have a big fleet that could. Weird, right? Well, yeah, I guess his point is we can't go everywhere they go and beat them everywhere. But if we have a big, scary fleet, then they won't be able to mess with us wherever we decide to do stuff. Something like this. Something like that. It's not a... There's so many different ways to think about this problem that it it doesn't it doesn't immediately sound like a terrible idea but of course there's all the the story of world war one is just everybody being really clever and just leading their countries into disaster yeah I, i i mean i see a flaw in this plan from the very first these battleships aren't going to be able to protect german colonies they don't have the range, and as Tirpitz is well aware, they don't have the naval bases. So we're going to create a big German fleet that will constitute a major threat to Britain. And the goal is to force them to play nice. So don't mess with our colonies or else. Right. So McCallum describes Tirpitz's political ideas as crude and naive. He's very good in domestic politics, but his view of international problems is very narrow. Uh, Like many others, Tirpitz thought that trade rivalry must always end in war. The English were going to try to stifle German trade unless they were severely frightened. He never seemed to account for the fact that Anglo-American trade rivalry didn't lead to lasting hostility. He also had a narrow view of the British. To him, all British were a unit and they were all hostile to Germany. And he had no idea of the debates between conservatives and liberals or labor MPs. Uh, He distrusted international conferences. He believed that British diplomats were endowed with devilish skill. So the British are a determined and irreconcilable enemy. The only way we can get through to them is to threaten them. But but it's funny because it's simultaneously underestimating them too, right? Like he's saying they're devilishly skilled, but we're going to use this crude thing that's going to work on them, on these devilishly skilled uh, opponents. Yeah, we're going to speak loudly and carry a big stick. And that's how we're going to defeat devilishly skilled. Well, we're not going to defeat them. We're we're right. going to make them recognize us as mm. equals or or you know maybe even superiors. Yeah, this is a flawed. This is a flawed plan. <laughs> In 1892, the Kaiser read a memorandum by Tirpitz advocating a battle fleet. And in 1895, 
Wilhelm made a speech to the Prussian War Academy where he launched the idea of having a great navy. Now the only question was, could he get the Reichstag to vote the necessary funds? And along comes the Jameson Raid in December of 1895. So this is when the British tried their uh, sneaky underhanded attack on the Transvaal. And that provoked a wave of anti-British feeling that nationalists and proponents of a big navy could use. And it also helped get (laughs) Tirpitz promoted. He became state secretary for the navy in June of 1897. And his job was to design the naval building program and then present the budget to the Reichstag. Up until then, the Navy had been floundering around between different strategic concepts, some of them pretty big, some of them very vague, and they had not impressed the members of the Reichstag, the politicians, and so they got little financial support. Turpus changed all of that. He produced a seven-year program for development described as crisp and saleable. He set up a section for news to disseminate propaganda and build support. And, you know, the the intellectual climate at the time was favorable. Uh, The Navy League, the Pan-German League, the German Colonial Society, they all became Tirpitz's allies. And and, uh, the the German Colonial Society helped out by distributing 2,000 free copies of Mahan's books. So the Kaiser was impressed by Tirpitz's success at winning over public opinion. So the essence of Tirpitz's strategy comes down to risk theory. So the British are working on the two-power standard. Risk theory is how Tirpitz sees it. Even a smaller, inferior fleet can carry tremendous diplomatic weight if it could threaten to do significant damage to an enemy, which might leave them vulnerable to their remaining foes. Rather than risk such damage, that enemy would seek to come to terms with Germany and perhaps even seek them as an ally. And this is where I think, seriously? So I threaten you so that you'll become my friend. Interesting. In theory, this fictional enemy could be anyone. In reality, it only applies to Britain. Germany doesn't need a navy to threaten France or Russia. That's what their army is for. And this is no secret, right? In the Navy Law of 1900, Tirpitz openly acknowledged the fleet must be capable of a naval battle in the North Sea against England. And I don't believe in, you know, memorizing dates, but there's no question that that's a significant date because for the last three years, the English had been trying for an alliance with Germany. This is the era of, you know, Chamberlain making nice with them to get that Teutonic, you know, racist alliance of, you know, fellow Teutons, you know, and not having enough success because the Germans price was too high. Germany didn't want to help Britain in the far East. Um, but they wanted Britain's help against France and Russia. Well, you know, we know that didn't work out, but you're, you know, planning to threaten the people that are trying to get a deal with you. To Germany get a commit- better deal. <laughs> yeah, we need a better deal. Well, yeah, they thought they could raise the, the, the price. Yeah. 
So Germany committed to building 19 battleships, eight coastal armored ships, 12 large and 30 small cruisers, and and a bunch more smaller vessels. Eventually, uh, 96 destroyers. It's a huge program, but it's simple and easy enough to understand, and Tirpitz managed to sell it to the Reichstag. Uh, The Boer War really helped. German public opinion was uh, outraged. Uh, at British interference with German ships, there were a couple of cases of the, you know, the British Navy stopping German merchant vessels because they suspected they were carrying weapons to the Boers. Uh, so the Germans are going to uh, respond by building a large navy, and in in the Navy Bill of 1900, it doubled the number of battleships. Now, I've read some who say that you know building the fleet was not the great error. But the great error was German diplomacy. So what is your plan here? Because risk theory works both ways. If the German fleet is damaged by the British, doesn't that leave Germany vulnerable to other powers? Or if the fleet is going to be a diplomatic weapon, if this is a a club that we're going to use to force the British into concessions, what concessions are you asking for? What, what is the price that would satisfy you, that, that you want to demand in return for a friendship or an alliance with Britain? And I don't know that they ever worked that out. Yeah, because you can't ask them to make you number one. That's not going to be a, a achievable demand. So yeah, it just seems to me that. like you've got this huge club and you're threatening Britain and they're going to go, all right, all right, what do you want? Oh, I hadn't thought actually, of that. No, <laughs> <laughs> hadn't thought that far. No, I think they did think that far. I just think they didn't want to say it because they know it's not something you can win in a in a negotiation, even if you have a big threat, because you're asking them to switch places with you. Yeah. Well, the double effort for Germany. Because they're not only expanding or building a fleet, but they're also expanding their army. Uh, it, it put a strain on German resources. Um, you might remember <laughs> the argument that Germany couldn't afford to lend money to Russia. And yet they have enough for two massive uh, armament efforts. Well, it's funny because it's like Germany's trying to do two things. They're trying to have a big navy and a huge army. Right. Britain's trying to be able to have the biggest navy over two of its rivals and everybody's trying to just overdo it. <laughs> you know, it just, it's like, it's, it's not enough to be like, we can defend our stuff. It's like, we have to be able to be two. We have to do it on two fronts, uh, two different modes. Yeah. Yeah. So I would warn, uh, <laughs> listeners or, or readers, you have to be beware of hindsight history. We know that Britain eventually responded to the German threat and started, you know, uh, responding to the, the German shipbuilding program. That didn't happen right away. They did not immediately respond. Germany was not the focus of their anxieties. 1898 is the year of Fashoda, when Britain seriously considered going to war with France. 
And the Entente Cordiale, their their uh, alliance with France or understanding with France, was still six years away. Russia was still seen as the main threat in the Far East. And that's the reason Chamberlain wanted an alliance with Germany in the first place. The Anglo-Japanese of alliance, uh, sorry, the Anglo-Japanese alliance of 1902 was directed at Russia, not Germany. Now, Britain was concerned with German public opinion. They, they were alarmed by the obvious anti-British feelings in Germany during the Boer War. But it wasn't really until 1902 that the British started worrying about Germany's naval program. Uh, the Times newspaper ran a piece on it, declaring that we cannot allow them to gain upon us without imperiling our all. The Admiralty studied the design of the new German battleships and realized that that these ships had very limited coal-carrying capacity. They couldn't cover large distances. This is not a colonial defense fleet. This is a short-range striking force. And again, they don't need a short-range striking force to deal with France or Russia. (laughs) You know, these ships have, you know, down with Britain stenciled on the side of them. But there's also so much they could have worked with in the sense that there were all many reasons why they could have gotten along. And it's strange. I I agree. I agree. And, you know, I'm going to keep hammering this point. The British were trying in, in 1898 and 99. But the Boer War inflamed public opinion and the Germans decided that they could get more for their friendship. The British were already rebuilding their navy and the army's performance in the Boer War was quite frankly atrocious. It was terrible. Uh, And it made some wonder whether the navy would fail them in a similar emergency. Then there's the changes in technology, rendering their ships obsolete. So a new team was formed to deal with these issues. And in in October of 1904, John Fisher, better known as Jackie Fisher, became first sea lord. He was born in Sri Lanka in 1841, served in China in 1859, and, and you realize he was pretty young. And he was also in Alexandria in 1882. He was particularly interested in design and technology and had an enormous capacity for work. He hated complacency and routine. They infuriated him. And he just wanted to shake up the whole Navy. He he described his test to become a cadet. He had to write out the Lord's Prayer, strip to his underwear, and jump over a chair. All right, you're in. So he wanted a very, very different education for aspiring young officers. He thought they had to understand machinery. They had to eventually specialize either in gunnery or engineering or torpedoes. And that meant that Fisher was fighting against traditionalists. And the traditionalists were prejudiced against the engineers. They referred to them as greasers. Fisher was ruthless. And he chose intelligent, uh, forward-thinking officers for promotion. He called his opponents skunks, pimps, fossils, and frightened rabbits. 
So he does not have Turpitz's public relations skills. Uh, he let, Let's just say he alienated quite a few of the uh, traditional old guard. And these officers uh, that weren't being promoted gathered around Lord Charles Beresford, uh, a nobleman with connections. Beresford was not only high-born, he had good looks and charm. By contrast, Fisher was short, stocky, and had unusual features. Uh, enemies whispered that he had Asian blood. I don't have to comment on that, do I? In that era? He, yeah, that's, yeah, there you go. So Fisher made enemies publicly, but in private he made friends. The liberals in government liked him because he was a reformer and yet saved money. Fisher had friends in the press, and he got along very well with King Edward VII although he he did frighten the king when he suggested that they Copenhagen the German fleet. that That's meaning a surprise attack without declaring war, which the British did to the Danish fleet in 1801 and 1807 so that Napoleon couldn't get his hands on it. My goodness. This, so this is, um, this is Pearl Harbor before... This yeah. is a day that would live in infamy. Well, two Two days. Two days. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, to the Danes, obviously quite infamous, but the British thought, you know, we're perfectly justified. Yeah. So, uh, he's saying, yeah, let's Copenhagen, the German fleet. And the King's reaction was my God, Fisher, you must be mad. (laughs) Uh, later King George V was not a fan of Fisher, but the British Navy by 1914 was the one that Fisher built. He's, he's another fascinating character. In fact, I would recommend... Yeah. If you're interested, check out both Turpitz and Fisher. Interesting careers, interesting people. So it's another thing about it is this is a kind of mini revival, right, of a decrepit um, empire in the sense that you know there's this there's this coasting on past achievements that yeah. imperialists always do, and every once in a while there's this question like, can they? Do they have the ability? the kind of flexibility to actually make a big change and retain their advantage. And it looks like they did in this case, uh, which probably well, they certainly made a, big... a major effort. Yeah. And he... if, they, if they hadn't, they probably would have lost. Uh, yeah. That's yeah. Yeah. Uh, your, Fisher brought your... in uh, sweeping reforms, uh, aiming at greater efficiency, but also greater economy mm-hmm. and, and the expense of rebuilding became a major political issue. More more on that later. So Fisher scrapped 154 obsolete ships, uh, which released their crews to create a, a reserve. He did away with some of the widely dispersed squadrons and concentrated the fleets at Dover, at Gibraltar, at Malta, and at Singapore. And he was able to do this because of improvements in uh, wireless communication and the speed of the ships. So neither the Admiralty nor the British press made it a secret. The modernization of the fleet was mainly designed to deal with the growing threat from Germany. France was still a hypothetical enemy, but the uh, Morocco crisis, which we covered earlier in 1905, where the Germans tried to split the Anglo-French Entente, it only succeeded in tightening relations between them. And military discussions about possible cooperation began. And in June of 1905, Fisher ordered the first studies 
on how to fight a naval war against Germany while allied to France. By the way, this wireless communication question is actually intriguing. You're talking about radio. Yep. And just around, what, 1900, they have military, they have this ship to shore radio. They start getting radio on their ships, being able to communicate over radio. Wow. Yeah. What what they did not do, which they should have, and I'll get to this later on, was have radios on every ship. No. They're still they relying have... on flags from the flagship, right? There's right. a reason. So they that... can't they can't radio each other, but they can radio shore. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh the Russian defeats in the Far East, particularly Tsushima, uh against Japan, changed the naval ballast. So Britain is no longer worried about having more than France and Russia. In fact, they now have a 10% superiority over France, Russia, and Germany. So with France as your ally, the two-power standard, you know, you've, you've surpassed it by far. But <laughs> do you want to rely on that alliance? What if that changes and all of a sudden you're left vastly outnumbered? Or... What if the technology keeps changing as quickly as it has done? So there were near simultaneously advances in the range of large naval guns, their accuracy, uh, fire control, and everybody realized that existing ships that had a mixture of large and medium caliber weapons were a waste. Those medium guns are never going to come within range. The big ships can open fire at such a distance that your medium-range guns cannot reach. And and the big ships couldn't come too close to other ships because those little ships sometimes have torpedoes, which are getting more dangerous and longer-ranged. And then you have speed. Some of those smaller ships are very, very fast, and you do not want them coming close to your big battleships. So now we go back to the Japanese, Russo-Japanese War. What lessons did they learn, other countries learn from this conflict? This is a really modern conflict, modern warships. And there were several (laughs) naval battles. Features the Russians sailing literally around the world. (laughs) Well, which was recognized as a major achievement. I mean, the the end result was rather bad. but Luster. (laughs) Yeah. In fact, there were British naval attaches on board some of the Japanese ships. The Japanese allowed them to come and observe. And they learned a few really key lessons and, of course, completely missed others. <laughs> Isn't that the story, right? We, we, we don't learn the right lessons from it. Uh, for example, the British didn't pay enough attention to mines. Both Russia and Japan had mines and 18 ships were sunk by mines, including three battleships. And as I say, the British simply didn't pay enough attention to this. When World War I began, they actually had to buy mines from Russia. Torpedoes had changed. Now, there was an argument, a technical argument in the Royal Navy between proponents and opponents of the torpedo. And unfortunately, the opponents 
could now laugh and point to the Russo-Japanese War. The Japanese launched uh, a torpedo attack under ideal conditions with near complete surprise, and they did only light damage. During the war, both sides launched a total of 370 torpedoes. Only 17 of them hit. Now, these torpedoes had a guidance system, the gyroscopes, but they were slow and they were inaccurate. So maximum range was uh, 4,500 yards and their maximum speed was 19 knots. By 1914, though, maximum range was 7,000 yards at 45 knots. That's a big difference, right? That's more than twice as fast, which means dodging them is not as easy. There were uh, no submarine attacks in the Russo-Japanese War. Now, the British had some submarines, but senior officers disliked them. One admiral said they were underhand, unfair, and damned (laughs) un-English. I think the Irish invented the submarine, right? I think we we looked that up. There was a submarine in the American Civil War. Yeah. Yeah. And gunnery and shells had changed, and the Russo-Japanese War showed that. Their naval battles were fought at long range, like up to 8,000 yards. So big guns and precise gunnery were obviously more important than, you know, having a large number of medium guns on your battleships. Russian gunners were unexpectedly accurate. They scored a lot of hits. Unfortunately, their shells were bad. There had been a, a debate, and there's still it was still ongoing, between supporters of armor-piercing shells versus high-explosive shells. The armor-piercing shells did not perform well. Uh, I, you know, I'm trying to figure out why. The only thing I can find is that the shells weren't that good, and there's the question of oblique impact. So if it hits straight on at a 90-degree angle, say, it's going to pierce steel. But if it hits at an angle, a different angle, uh, oblique, the armor-piercing shells just broke apart. They just shattered and did not do damage. Meanwhile, Japanese high-explosive shells did considerable damage when they landed on the deck of a Russian ship, for example. They also gave off a ton of smoke, which... I mean, it wasn't poison gas, but that was kind of the impact. It choked and blinded men and and it caused a lot of casualties as well. So the Russians and Japanese both experienced command chaos. Uh, I think it was just natural. Both sides targeted the enemy flagship. That's where the signals are coming from, right? So if you can disable that ship, you can cause chaos in the enemy line of battle. So staff officers would be killed, uh, steering gear was damaged, and those flag uh, systems on the halyards were shot away. And also, the more smoke you get, the harder it is to see the signal flags. So there was one episode, I think it was at Tsushima, where the Russian flagship was hit by high-explosive shells. The steering gear and the flags were shot away. So the ship started to veer in a different direction and they weren't able to signal the rest of the fleet that, you know, we're not going this way on purpose. Don't follow us. The British should have invested in radio and they should have trained radio technicians, but they didn't trust it. 
It was a newfangled apparatus. <laughs> Were the Americans into it? They must have been. I don't know that they learned any valuable lessons. Maybe maybe later. Right. But I, I certainly know from their appearance in World War I that they weren't very good at learning lessons from other people either. Uh, one lesson should have been clear from the Russo-Japanese War. Heroism is not enough to decide a battle. Uh, in this sense, you know, the side with the fastest ships and the most big guns was going to win. Paul Kennedy is uh, back. <laughs> well, this is simple, simple technology. It, if you're going to send a slower and weaker force after a strong enemy, it, it's worse than useless. It's suicidal. And the British tried this several times in World War I. They had to learn the lesson all over again instead of learning it from the Japanese and Russian experience. And this is where the dreadnought enters. In 1905, Admiral Fisher authorized the building of a brand new battleship. Uh, previous generations, in the 1890s, for example, Britain built battleships with four 12-inch guns. <clears throat> They'd be mounted in two turrets, one fore and one aft. And they had secondary armament, usually six-inch guns mounted on one side or the other. And there were different classes of ships. The King Edward had four nine-inch guns and ten six-inch guns. And the Agamemnon class had ten nine-inch guns. But now the lessons they've learned are that these guns aren't going to come into range if we're fighting an enemy that has bigger guns. The dreadnought is going to be different. It's going to have 10 12-inch guns in five turrets. And the firepower advantage of this one ship is huge. Huge. Fisher was actually criticized because the introduction of this ship made the rest of the Royal Navy's battleships obsolete <laughs> in one stroke. This is the Imperial Death Star of battleships, and there's nothing that can compete with it. But he was right. The, these 12-inch guns could fire 14,000 yards. Tsushima was fought at 8,000. So this makes 6- and 9-inch guns irrelevant. In order to get close enough to use those guns, enemy ships would have to survive multiple salvos at long range. The German Navy, well, obviously they were shattered by this development. And they started referring to their pre-dreadnought battleships as fünf Minuten ships. <laughs> Five minutes. <laughs> Five minutes, because that's how long they'd be able to survive salvos from a dreadnought. Wow. So Fisher now applied the same principles to his cruisers. He created the battle cruiser, equal armament, but built for speed. So less defensive armor, but with that speed, it could sail ahead and act as the eyes of the fleet. And if it runs into anybody else's traditional cruisers, it's going to blow them out of the water. So the inflexible class of uh, battle cruiser had 41,000 horsepower compared to the dreadnoughts, 18,000. And the inflexible had eight 12-inch guns. The only sacrifice was armor. So the, just the appearance of the dreadnought starts a whole new chapter of the naval race. So by so, yeah, this yeah, what a disaster. By 1906, Britain had a dreadnought. Germany did not. By 1907, Britain had three dreadnoughts, and Germany had none. 
1908, though, the Germans started a new building program. The British built two dreadnoughts. The Germans built four. Hmm. And in 1909, the British built two, and the Germans built three. So there's no technology that the Germans don't have. It's just like, oh, cool idea. We can build our own. It wasn't like they had to have an industrial spy come and. No, you can't hide these things. Mm -hmm. You can't hide these things. They're they're quite obviously carrying what they're carrying. And, you know, the idea of having a secret naval base where you hide your ships. Well, you got like a 12 inch gun. You just it once once you see that you can make one, you could just make one. Like, why didn't. Oh, sure. Well, you've got land-based artillery that's that's bigger than that. It's even bigger. I see. Yeah. So the, the, the point here is that by 1909, the British had eight dreadnoughts, but Germany had seven. And of course, other countries are going to start building dreadnoughts. They, they kind of have to. So this is alarming for Britain. And in 1910, they started another ambitious building program. They built three dreadnoughts, the Germans only one. In 1911, it was five to three. In 1912, three to two. In 1913, seven to three. And then in 1914, three to one. By that time, Britain had 29 dreadnoughts and the Germans had 17. And not only only are they uh, racing to produce dreadnoughts, they're also racing to produce battle cruisers. And by 1914, Britain had nine, Germany seven. These ships are so big, they are so different, the Germans had to widen the Kiel Canal so that these ships could sail from the Baltic to the North Sea without going around Denmark. It took, it took them eight years to widen the oh Kiel Canal. A few years ago when we uh, talked about naval battles in Asia, I mentioned this Korean admiral. There was this movie, right? At the Admiral Raging Seas or something. Oh, raging okay. currents. And it's interesting because the Koreans were fighting the Japanese and they had the Koreans had some huge ships and the Japanese had smaller ships. And so it was sort of like 12 big ships against 100 small ships and the, the big ships won because first, I, I imagine the dynamics were something like this, but it was hundreds and hundreds of years before. So it's just it's very interesting to see some of these some of these technological developments that favor big ships versus small ships versus mm. big ships again. Interesting. Yeah. And this is the, uh, the, the complete reverse of uh, the Spanish Armada when, you know, the British yeah. little ships uh, danced around the big Spanish galleons and did them tremendous damage. But uh, time, time and technology have changed. The cost of these ships is astronomic, and so is the cost of building up your navy <clears throat> just to, to, to support them. Uh, in 1900, the British Navy had 98,000 men. By 1913, it was 140,000. The naval budget in 1906 was 33 million pounds, and that went up to 44 million in 1913. You you have more to do than just build the ships. You need dockyards. You need harbor defenses. The British South Coast had always been the vital one because that's where the French would be coming from. But now planners have to worry about the East Coast, the North Coast. Fisher tried to save money by scrapping useless ships. Yeah, because lots of ships are useless now, right? Because oh, yeah. You have, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, you've rendered most of your navy obsolete, actually. Uh, and and naval naval expenditures as a share of the national budget actually fell from one third to just over a quarter. Social spending in Britain was rising, and now you have the 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 uh, famous argument between guns and butter. Well, the people want both. Conservative voters were more afraid of falling behind in the naval race. The, the Tories were all for a big Navy, but they refused any changes in taxation to pay for it. You're right. They're still supported by the landed aristocrats, and those guys don't want to pay for it. Uh, the Liberal Party actually split on this issue. You had liberal imperialists, uh, Asquith, Haldane, and Gray, who believed in the Navy, but you know, part of the reasoning was they didn't want to lose votes for failing to support it. And even the fledgling Labour Party was divided. No, founded in 1900, I guess. Mm-hmm. There was a peace conference at The Hague uh, scheduled for 1906, postponed to 1907. This was the second big one. And the Liberal Prime Minister, Campbell Bannerman, decided to make a gesture and proposed naval disarmament. Now, at that stage, it would have given Britain a big lead over Germany, and the Germans naturally refused. And by 1908, they had closed the gap, rather alarmingly close. So the new first sea lord, McKenna, wanted six dreadnoughts started that year, and six more for the next three years. And that's going to be ferociously expensive. So the social reformers who wanted to spend money uh, on their people, on, on infrastructure and housing and things like that, uh, led by David Lloyd George and Winston Churchill. Yes, Winston, objected. <laughs> they would only approve four. So now public pressure on the government began to mount. Uh, this naval question was a real boon for conservatives, and, and it became a problem for the, the liberals, a thorny problem. And then, I don't know who started this, but there was a slogan that, that hit the newspapers and started, we want eight and we won't wait. <laughs> wow. What a, what a, what a inspiring campaign. To, yeah, uh, it's so simple. It's so mindless and so damn effective. So to save money, the British government tried to get the colonies to contribute <laughs> Hey, why don't you help us by, you know, building ships? <laughs> and this led to a minor crisis in Canada because Prime Minister Laurier, you know, if we build ships, they're going to be for Britain. We're we're still completely under British control, foreign policy and war. So he had to uh, steer between, you know, conservative and, and pro-British nationalists who wanted a navy and those who balked at the cost or like... Uh, French Canadians in Quebec wanted nothing to do with building ships for Britain. Mm -hmm. So he had to find a, you know, a compromise where Canada could build some <laughs> ships, but they would be under Canadian command. Like the Boer War, basically. It's, it's, it's a <laughs> yeah. same kind of compromise. We, we won't go, but we'll send some people who want to yeah. go. Uh, well, that was his modus operandi, find a compromise so that we don't tear the country apart. But that was, you know, that was, that was a, the naval bill was a crisis for, for Canada. It's all related to these bloody dreadnoughts. 
<laughs> and then yeah, I don't I don't think they asked India whether they wanted to contribute. <laughs> <laughs> I do not remember anything like that. Base is at Mumbai, right? They had a big shipyard there. So uh, we have a lot more to do on this. Yeah, maybe yeah. this maybe this length <laughs> for part two. So let's split it into part one and two, and and in the next one we'll talk about the impact of the naval race. And I see you have some stories, and oh, we gosh, also yeah. and we also um, I've discovered Dave as a as a spoiler alert for listeners that uh, that the Christopher Clark character you've been quoting to us was responding to someone called Fritz Fisher. So the Yeah, I read that bit. Yeah. So, so Christopher f- Clark is, is was saying, you know, this none of this was Germany's fault in reaction to a historian who came on the scene in the 60s, I think, as an explosive it was called the Fisher thesis. Yep. And the Fisher thesis was that Germany was to blame for everything, which, you know. Yeah, I we covered Fisher when I was in university. Yeah. Uh, I, I was thinking we would introduce him in the context of the Treaty of Versailles. Right. Because I just ev- thought his historiographically because um because of uh because Christopher Clark's interesting yeah, <laughs> overreactions are <laughs> coming up, I thought we might as well give him a chance to to say who he's who he's reacting to there. Yeah, yeah. Clark's not the first to react to Fisher. Yeah. But yeah, other other than that, it was all partisan nationalist. You know, every Frenchman said it was Germany's fault, and every German yeah. said it wasn't our fault. Yeah. So Clark is very pro-German, and Fisher is very anti-German, and that's that's uh, you know that's the kind of thing I like. You like to see it, you know. I don't, I don't <laughs> <laughs> Unless they start bending the rules to make their point, which they both. Do. I don't know. <laughs> Clark does at least. Well, Clark does for sure. Fisher. Yeah, I know that.